Now, as a prelude to the message, uh, especially for those of you who are parents, um, normally uh, messages don't have a rating, um, but this one might have a PG rating, and so I just would encourage those of you who are parents, if you need to do something about that, to, uh, to do so, because we're going to talk about a serious subject this morning, and I don't want to intrude into your family's discussion of things that you want to, um, to discuss as a family. So as we come to the Word of God, we come today as you're working your way as a church through the biblical book of 1 Corinthians to chapter 5. And if you're using the ESV, which I am, <clears throat> the uh, title that the ESV, the English Standard Version, gives to this chapter is uh, Sexual Immorality Defiles the Church. And so what I have simply done is I've simply taken the title that the ESV gives to this chapter and adopted it as the title for the message uh, this morning. Father, as we look into your word, um, this is a serious passage and one that we don't often as a church or as churches take time to consider in depth. And so we need um, more than ever that your spirit would guide us into your word that you would help us to understand what is here uh, for the glory of our Savior's name and for the good of us who are his church. And so we ask for discernment and understanding and wise, listening hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Now you might say, why do we need to talk about this? And the best answer to that would be because the Bible talks about it at great length. And so clearly God has some very important things that he wants us to hear in this matter. As one compelling illustration of how vital this topic is, this past Friday, the Associated Press published a short article originating from a reporter at the Vatican. And the headline was this, Pope defrocks 400 priests in two years. A document obtained by the Associated Press shows that Pope Benedict XVI, the predecessor to the present pope, defrocked nearly 400 priests over just two years for molesting children. The statistics for 2011-2012, which were given there, represent the first time that the Vatican has provided details on the number of priests who have been defrocked. Prior to that, it had revealed only the number of alleged cases of sexual abuse it had received. So with this report and others like it, our tendency is sometimes just to to shake our head and express disbelief or shock or dismay or some stronger emotion, all of which most of us would identify with, I think. Unless, of course, you have gone through this kind of experience yourself. In which case your response is much more visceral than that. And so today I want to ask you in the light of our passage to take a deeper look at the church. For me, a look at our Western AGC churches, for you who fellowship here at your own local church, for guests today, wherever you may worship regularly, or if you don't come to church often, perhaps for the first time thinking about the church in general in this area. And there are, you likely realize, difficult questions that lurk beneath the surface here, questions about how does sexual sin get a foothold in the church? 
and about the massive research that exists about just how pervasive the problem is in churches in this area of sexuality, not just for the Roman Catholic Church and its priests, but for the leaders and lay people of evangelical churches in Canada and the U.S. and around the globe. Now, this sermon is much more about what to do than it is about the why. But the questions linger, and this is a vital word for us to hear if we care today about the church, the bride of Christ. And so, my friends, hard and distasteful as it is to face, this passage is about us. It's not about someone else, somewhere else, although it is that as well. Paul here is, of course, writing to the Corinthians to give them clear and strong advice on dealing with a specific problem. But there is much here for all of us about how God feels about the purity of his bride, the church, and what he wants us to do about the purity of his bride. And so with those realities in mind and that introduction, let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I've given you quite an extensive outline there. Um, Feel free to write on it and um, underline. It's yours to take home. And it's basically how I do a sermon. I try to put it together and hope that it holds together so that when I share it with you that it's uh, meaningful for you and explains God's word. First of all, the problem, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So in this chapter, Paul switches from the earlier thoughts. You've already come through four chapters of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, Stuart preached last Sunday, I understand, and did a good job of, of looking at that passage. But now Paul kind of switches from the earlier section of the book to some wise and urgent comments on disorders in the church and how they should be dealt with. Uh, here in chapter 5, he talks about the, the church's failure to discipline an immoral brother. In chapter 6, he will talk about their inability to resolve personal disputes in a godly manner and their struggles to maintain sexual purity in an increasingly sensual society. And then in chapter 7, he'll go on to talk about the whole matter of marriage. Sounds quite 21st century-ish, doesn't it? So first thing Paul does, he identifies the problem. He wastes no time in getting to the point. Reliable reports have come to him of sexual immorality among them, of a kind even pagans wouldn't tolerate. And the verse I've given you, the first verse on your outline, is from Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 11. Where God says, If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So Paul immediately speaks to them about this problem that is present among them. A man is in a known sexual relationship with his father's wife, likely his stepmother, and likely not a believer because he does not mention her at all in the course of this discussion. 
sexual, sexual immorality, the word there, the Greek word, is a Greek word called porneia. And I've defined it for you or given you a definition from Strong's Enhanced Concordance at the very end of your um, material that I've given you there. I'm not going to read that through because it contains some terms that perhaps we ought not to talk about this morning. But the word generally refers to uh, sexual immorality. It's not just about one specific kind. It's about quite a broad um, spectrum. And the word, of course, porneia, you will recognize that word as the word from which we get the word pornography. So Corinth, the city of Corinth, was notorious for its sexual immorality. To Corinthianize in, in the parlance of the day was, or to live like a Corinthian was a byword for immoral excesses of the worst possible kind. Corinth had a temple to the goddess, the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And so there were a thousand prostitutes in that temple. And the way that you worshipped was by going to the temple and engaging in a relationship with one of those prostitutes, not a conversation. And so it was understandable, therefore, that the people who came to faith in the Lord Jesus in a city like this, a port city in addition to being a city with this temple, that people who came to Christ had battles to fight in this area. And nevertheless, God's call to his people, no matter how evil the world in which they live or we live is, to honor the Lord Jesus by the holiness of our lives. We sang the last song this morning, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Paul starts the book of 1 Corinthians by saying to the Corinthian Christians that they are called to be saints or holy ones. He lays it out for them right at the very beginning. And so in other parts of the scripture, which I'll reference for you here in just a moment, we find the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking often to believers about the seriousness and the consequences of this kind of sin. You're going to come up against it when you get to chapter 6, the next chapter. Let me read briefly from that chapter, chapter 6, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, there's pornos, a derivative of porne, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, he says to them. So he recognizes the background out of which they have come. But, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then he continues on in verse 13 to say the body is not meant for porneia, for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then verse 18 and on, flee from porneia, from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person, pornos, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So Paul at great lengths goes into, uh, in chapter 6, this whole matter of sexual immorality. But here he's dealing with one specific case. Ephesians chapter 5, he says similar things. Chapter 5, verse 3. 
But sexual immorality, porneia, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who, it is covetous, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words that say, kind of, it doesn't matter. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul doesn't hold much back here. He, he comes straight to the point to say there's a problem among you, and that problem is the problem of sexual immorality. And then he also uh, then rebukes their attitude. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? It seems that their attitude, instead of mourning over the wrong that was being done in, the, done in their very midst, their attitude seems to have been, look what grace can forgive. Look how wonderful God is to forgive this person who's doing this thing. And kind of look how open-minded we are to tolerate this among us. And Paul says, that's arrogance. And he rebukes them. And it's somewhat reminiscent of Jude in his letter, um, just a very small letter just before uh, you come to Revelation, where in verse 4 of that letter of Jude, uh, Jude talks about those who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. So who take God's grace and says, because God is so gracious, we can do whatever he wants and he'll forgive us. And that's what Paul is rebuking in them in this case. And then he gives them the action to be taken. There's no hesitation on Paul's part. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul has thought and prayed, no doubt, but he does not advise them to delay and consider. He tells them to act and he tells them just how to go about it. So that's the problem. And the the next part that Paul looks at is the prescription, verses 3 to 5. For, though absent in body, I am present in spirit, Paul says. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present... With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, maybe the number of questions come to your mind as I read that scripture, and that would be quite understandable. I'll try to answer some of them. The rest of them you should probably take to your elders and your pastor, and to the scriptures yourself, because there are lots of questions here. First question is this. Why is this action to be taken? So Paul says you're to, to assemble together and deliver this man to Satan for the discretion of the flesh so his spirit may be saved. Why are they to take this action? Well, for the reasons that he's just said, because God forbids it. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, we've read that scripture. Because this behavior is seen to be shameful among pagans, so how could it be accepted by the people of God in their midst? That's another reason. And there's another reason that comes up in Hebrews chapter 12, which uh, Pastor Dan read for us this morning. And I'm not going to spend a long time there this morning, but there are a couple of the verses that I've given you on your outline that come from Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll reference those in just a moment. 
But Hebrews chapter 12 is a chapter that's all, much of it is about the discipline of God. And essentially it says that God disciplines every single Christian without exception. It says there in Hebrews chapter 12, if you have not experienced God's discipline, you are not one of his children. Now, what I want to impress upon you is that God's discipline has a wide, wide range to it. So sometimes God's discipline is just a simple whisper of his spirit in your heart. And sometimes God's discipline is is his word as you hear it or as you read it. Sometimes God's discipline is a brother or a sister that speaks to you. Sometimes God's discipline is when the traffic cop pulls you over for going 125 down the number two. And sometimes God's discipline is a brother or two or three coming and speaking to you about something. And sometimes God's discipline is this that we're talking about this morning, which is kind of the very far end, the very far end of his discipline. All of that is God's discipline. It's not that God kind of goes like this, whack, whack, whack. That's not God's discipline. God's discipline is all of those things. And we need to recognize it as being that range. But here, um, in Hebrews chapter 12, it does speak about God's discipline with regard to sexual immorality. And it says in the verses that I've given to you, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So God is saying to us as Christians, to us as individual Christians, and to us as his body, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. In other words, God is saying to us, you have a responsibility here. There is something that you are to do about this. And it doesn't mean that we can manipulate a person or that we can make them do what they should do. But God says, as much as lieth within you, as he puts it another way, another place, you are to give yourself to this ministry. So that is one of the reasons why this action should be taken here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Another reason why it should be taken is because this is a command given with the authority of an apostle. And the very existence of the scripture, which are in many ways the writings of the apostles... So the existence of the scriptures and the teachings of the scriptures make it very plain that the apostles have the authority of Jesus Christ to guide the church. And that is exactly what Paul the Apostle is doing here in this case. He is giving guidance to the church as to what they are to do. And then another question that may have come to your mind as you read this little section of this passage is how are they to go about it? Well, Paul seems to describe it fairly plainly. He says... Uh, you are, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, so the, the, the church is assembled, whether it's the elders assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus or whether it's the whole body, we don't exactly know, but the church is to be assembled. And they are to, uh, as they are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and Paul's spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, they are to deliver this man. So I'm assuming that in prayer they are to ask that God will 
deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now that is a somewhat unique expression. It doesn't occur often in the scriptures, but it does occur. Um, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, he speaks about two men whose names are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may be learned not to blaspheme. So that's where one other place where Paul talks about this. But the idea of turning someone over to Satan, let me just give you a few thoughts about that. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the Bible says that the whole world lies in the power of Satan. The whole world lies under the power of Satan. So, much as we have to be careful about dualistic thinking, only two things. The Bible does say that there is a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And if you are not in the kingdom of light, then by deduction, you are in the kingdom of darkness. And you come out of the kingdom of darkness to come into the kingdom of light of, of the, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> when you pray that someone will be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, what you are in essence saying is, Father, remove from this person the protection that comes from being connected with the kingdom of light. And we don't think about this often, friends, but there is a protection that comes from you being here on Sunday morning. If you're a Christian... If you're a non-Christian this morning and you're married to someone who is a Christian, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think it is, talks about a, a, a holiness, a sanctity that comes upon your marriage because there's a, a Christian there. So there's things that operate beneath the surface or behind the scenes that we don't think about a lot. And this is one of the occasions when those things come to the forefront where Paul says, by prayer, you remove from this person the protection afforded by the body of Christ. And probably the best example of this that you might be familiar with is, is Job. And it may be that in your past as a Christian you have prayed that God's hedge of protection would be around someone, right? And, and, and when God removes that hedge of protection, that's what he did with Job. Now, it wasn't to discipline Job. It was actually, as you know, there was this battle going on behind the scenes. Satan says... You know, the only reason that Job loves you is because you give him all these things and you protect him and you do all these good things. You take it all away and he'll curse you. And God says to Satan, very well, take it all away. Satan takes it all away. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? You've taken all that stuff away from him and he still is faithful. And, and Satan says, skin for a skin, you, you inflict his body and he's going to curse you to your face. So God says, very well, he's in your power, but you have to spare his life. Satan goes out from the presence of God and strikes Job with boils and unimaginable pain. And Job sits upon the ash heap and scrapes himself with a piece of pottery to get the pus off of him. And still does not curse God. But that's probably the best example we have of God allowing his protection to be removed from someone so that Satan can get at that person. And that is the thought here, that in praying, the church of Jesus Christ is to remove the protection of God and give this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Whether that means his body or his sin nature is a matter of discussion that you can talk about with your pastor or one of your elders. But 
we're not exactly sure. And what, but what is the hope for result? And the hope for result is this, the very end of this little section, verse 5. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now this may sound a little harsh to you, but God is more interested in your spirit than he is in your body. He's actually interested in both. But he is more concerned that your spirit be saved in the day of Jesus Christ than that you have a healthy body. And this is one of the cases, again, where God's priorities become fairly evident to us in this particular matter. So the goal, then, is to rescue this man by virtue of the action of this discipline from the pit of sin in which he is caught so that he will be saved in the day of the Lord. Many years ago, I drove a truck in between um, my <coughs> university education and going back to Bible school to, to learn how to preach. Whether I did that or not, I'll let you judge. But, um, so I drove a truck for a year, hauling gravel, a semi, hauling gravel onto rural roads, spreading it on there and stockpiling it as well. <coughs> and I worked with a young man whose name was Ronnie Sunbow. This is 40 years ago. But, um, and Ronnie was a younger man than me. He was a, his parents lived on the campus of Briarcrest Bible College, and I had known them when I lived there and went to school. And uh, Ronnie drove a truck. And he and I were both hauling gravel, and one day I pulled over <clears throat> because I had to fix a, uh, a fuel tank strap that had come loose, and he went off down the road. Uh, Ronnie was a Christian, but his life was like this. So he would walk with the Lord for a little while, but then he would crash. And then he would walk with the Lord for a little while, and then he would crash. So Ronnie went off down the road with his load, and they found him in a town not far away. Ronnie, with his load full of gravel, had not stopped when he crossed the provincial highway, which we were supposed to do. And he had hit a locomotive dead on the side of the engine with his load and knocked the engine off the tracks on its side. Now, the engine was probably going along and Ronnie hit it, but it gives you some idea of the force that was involved. And Ronnie had passed away right on the scene, was still inside the canvas truck. Ronnie's mom and dad, he was, had been adopted by them. Ronnie's mom and dad took that as the Lord's mercy in Ronnie's life. And you and I can't judge those kind of things because only God knows. But they took it because just a week or so before, Ronnie had come to, the, to me and to another person who was a Christian on the outfit and, and had prayed with us and come back into fellowship with the Lord. And his parents felt that God had taken him away while he was in that state. Now, we don't often think about things like this, do we? We don't give much thought to the mortal danger that a person's soul may be in by virtue of sexual or other sin that they are caught up in. We think and sometimes we say that they're just sowing their wild oats or kicking up their heels or some other foolishness. And we need to pay all the more attention when in a passage like this, God pulls back the curtain to show us that eternal things are in view here. Philip Yancey, whose books I've I've read, uh, most of them, uh, once had a friend who took him out to dinner. And as they were finishing up the main course and the coffee was being brought, Philip Yancey's friend said to him, Philip, I'm going to have an affair. Will God forgive me if I do that? 
And Philip Yancey said he sat there for a long time and the coffee got cold. And finally he said to his friend, of course God will forgive you. God forgives our sins. But the more important question is this, will you want to be forgiven? So you see, friends, we can get caught in things that carry us on for years and years and years when we play around with sexual sin. So Paul then goes on to talk about the peril, not just to this man and his eternal soul, but also to the larger body, the church. He says in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So their arrogance in this has led to the real danger that the whole church, the whole lump, will be affected. It's the old, a bad apple spoils the barrel proverb. And some of you are familiar with cancer. Some of you more familiar with it than you would like to be. How a single cancer cell can grow and multiply and spread so that if it's left unchecked, it can cause the death of the whole body. And that's a good picture for us to keep in mind as we think about this passage. This man's behavior is a cancer in the body. And Paul says you need to cut it out. And so Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And the paramount reason, the biggest reason for removing the leaven or sin among them, because leaven is a common biblical symbol of sin. Remember in the Passover feast in the Old Testament? They were to clean all the leaven out of their house because leaven was a symbol of sin. The paramount reason for removing the leaven is so that they might live worthy of their calling as followers of Jesus. He says, you really are unleavened, so live like it. Get rid of the leaven amongst you as the church of Jesus Christ that is to be pure. Why? Because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus has paid for your sin with his blood. It's been painted on the doorpost of your heart as the blood was painted on the doorposts of the children of Israel back in Egypt. So deal with the leaven for Jesus' sake so that you can celebrate the festival so you can worship God in a way that's pleasing to him. As long as the leaven's there, you can't worship God in a way that is pleasing to him. So celebrate the festival, worship God, not with the old leavened bread of malice and evil the way you used to live, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, the new life that God has called you to. So in essence, Paul is asking them, and he's asking us today too, do you care enough about your Savior, the one who died for you, and about his body, the church, to deal with the leaven, with the sin that's present in your life as an individual or in your church that may be threatening to destroy you. Well, Paul concludes by outlining some principles for them to live by. Verses 9 to 13. I wrote to you in my letter. That's a previous letter. It's one that we don't really have. Paul likely wrote lots of letters that we don't have, and only some have made it into the scriptures. But he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or, and swindlers or idolaters. 
Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you, the church, are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul makes it clear then to the believers in Corinth here that he is not talking about their relationship with unbelievers. Because the unbelievers that are out there, we are called to live among them in holiness and in love so that they will see the love of Christ and the holiness of Christ and they'll be one to faith in him through our lives. No, he's talking about someone who calls himself a brother or sister and who is unwilling to turn away from sin in their lives. So two vital principles for those who belong to Christ. Number one, you are not to associate with sexually immoral, unrepentantly sinful brothers or sisters. You are not to associate with sexually immoral, unrepentantly sinful brothers and sisters. Now, we don't take very readily to this command, do we? And one of the reasons we don't take too readily to it is that it takes dead aim at this idea that we are free to live however we want. That's the cry of our culture, isn't it? I did it my way. I'm going to do whatever I want, and nobody is going to tell me how I'm going to live. And that attitude tends to creep into our lives, doesn't it? It tends to get into our lives as people who belong to Christ. But the principle is different for believers, isn't it? There is a higher principle, a higher loyalty that's to govern our lives. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. If you're a Christian today, you do not belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And what Paul is saying here is that we are to take our loyalty to Christ so seriously that we allow it to govern even those with whom we associate. That's the lesson. It's not me saying it. It's the word of God saying it. Now this may extend even to those with whom we eat, although it's likely that this indicates that such people as are in view here are not to eat at the Lord's table. In other words, not to participate in communion. Principle number two, you are, you are to judge. You are not to associate with those who are unrepentantly sinful. Number two, you are to judge as a church those inside the fellowship. And God will judge those outside. Paul says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? As the body of Christ, God reminds us he will look after judging those who are not believers. We're not to judge those people. We're to reach out to them with the gospel. What we are to do is we are to judge those who are part of the body. And many times today you hear people say, well, as Christians, we're not supposed to judge. That's not true. You are not to judge a person's motives. You are not to judge whether they are Christian or not, unless it's on the basis of the fruit of their lives. But you are to judge, based on this passage, their behavior and whether or not they're living in unrepented sin. And if they are, we are to speak to them about this, First of all, individually, then we are to take a brother or sister with us to speak to them about it. And on the basis of Matthew chapter 18, I believe it is, then we are to take it to the church if they are unwilling to set that aside in repentance.
Well, Paul finishes this chapter with one final weighty exhortation, one simple sentence when he says, Purge the evil from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. If you'll note, there's quotes around that small sentence. And what that tells you is it comes from somewhere else in the Bible. And over and over again in the Old Testament, it says exactly that. Purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5, where a prophet wants to mislead you and take you away to worship other gods. Purge the evil from among you. When there's an idolater who's worshiping other gods, purge the evil from among you. Chapter 17, verse 7. Deuteronomy 17, verse 12, where there's a person who's disobedient to God's command through a priest or judge, purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 21, verse 21, when there's a rebellious son, purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 21, when there's an immoral wife, purge the evil from among you. And so it goes on and on and on, many different times in the Old Testament. And basically, the purge from the evil from among you there is put them to death. And so here in the New Testament, Paul is adapting that purge the evil from among you to say it's not put them to death, but it is to put them outside of the body because they will cause the body to be defiled. So the presence of evil among God's people can sadly remove his blessing and even cause the death of the guilty. So that's the story of Achan, right, in the Old Testament, where Achan had done something wrong, but he and his wife and his family all died for what he had done wrong. And then Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, Acts chapter 6, I believe it is, when they lied to the Holy Spirit and both of them died. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when you read about the Lord's Supper, and it says that there are some people who don't discern the body, And don't judge themselves as they come to the Lord's table. And it says, because of that, many are weak and sick among you, and a number sleep, and others, a number have died, because they are not discerning uh, the body. So Paul is aware then of these kinds of examples and of the fact that God takes sin in his body very, very seriously, and he's anxious that the church in Corinth not experience that. Well, as I conclude, this account from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 actually has, by the grace of God, a happy ending. As far as we can tell, the Corinthian Christians did as Paul said, and they dealt with this sinning brother. We know this because in the second chapter of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says to them, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn now to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So a process had happened. As far as we can understand, they they disciplined this brother. He responded in repentance and in turning away from his sinfulness. And then in in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is urging them, to bring him back into the body again and to reaffirm their love for him. Well, my friends, we don't think about these things very often. They're difficult, and we tremble at the thought of needing to discipline other Christians 
especially when we think about our own hearts and how easily we can be led astray. And that's as it should be. We should think carefully. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we're to be careful. And we are to be watching ourselves. But we are not given permission by Scripture to neglect the holiness of the church. We are to do something about sin in our midst. Carefulness and love in dealing with sin in the fellowship are indicative of a love for Christ and a love for his church and a love for a brother or sister that is not present in those who just want to overlook it and hope it will go away. So may God enable us to honor him and to love each other as we deal together when it's necessary with these sorrowful things in the life of the body for the glory of the one who gave his life for us all. Father, how we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he, as our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin. But Father, you know our stubborn hearts. You know that David, the king, must have paused for likely eight or nine months before he did something about his sin. You know that sometimes we dilly and dally and we know there's things wrong in our lives or perhaps sometimes in our church and and we won't do anything about it. And so, Father, we pray for grace as your people individually to deal with sin in our own lives. To heed the voice of God, the still small voice that whispers in our spirit or speaks to us from the word of God or shouts to us through our pain or is spoken to us by a brother. Help us to deal with the things that are wrong. And we do again ask for your forgiveness and your cleansing in our lives. And we confess our sin to you. And Father, on those few occasions when sin arises in the body of Christ and we need to deal with it, we pray you'll give us the the love and the grace and the firmness and the courage to do what we need to do. Father, it's only your spirit who can guide us aright in these things. And so we pray that your spirit might take these things that we've studied this morning. Help us to understand them. May they sink down deep in our hearts. And may we go from this place conscious of your grace that is so present for us, if we'll only cry out to you. And so we commend one another to you. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit rest and remain upon us until Jesus comes. For we pray it in his name. Amen.